Welcome to Pulse, a Paychex HR podcast, where HR professionals find insights on today's top issues and inspiration to build and lead effective teams in a healthier workplace. I'm your host, Rob Parsons. Welcome to the Pulse podcast, formerly the Paychex HR Leadership Series. This episode is part of a special series we are running on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm pleased to welcome my co-host for the series, Dr. Thiele Thatch. Thiele leads the DEI effort, initiatives, and programs here at Paychex. With a PhD in public policy and administration from Walden University, and more than two decades of experience in human resources, talent management, and organizational development, Thiele is passionate about building cultures where an authentic commitment to inclusion, equity, and diversity thrive. Thanks for helping out, Thiele. I'm really glad to be here, Rob. Thanks for having me. Today, we are continuing our conversation with Joe Gerstand. Joe is a leader helping organizations understand diversity and inclusion. As a keynote speaker and consultant, Joe works with Fortune 500 companies, small nonprofits, and everything in between. Seamlessly interweaving art and science, Joe uses stories and research to illustrate how next-generation cultures can flourish both inside and outside the workplace. Joe, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure to be here. It was um, so great. The end of the last episode, when you were talking about how there were so many layers there, but how important it was to engage the white men in an organization and how to, to try to build a personal connection for them so that they even understand what other people are going through and, 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 and I guess just be more empathetic, be more accountable uh, and really own it because we can't force, we can't, we can't force this effort on people. People have to own it for it to be effective. And I really liked where you were going there with that, that the, where we had to cut off before. Yeah, Rob, I, I did too. And I just was curious as Joe, as you were talking about that, you know, as a black woman, I just had this pressing issue in my, in my head on what motivates you. And I, I feel like I've asked this in a different way, but I'm going to ask it again. <laughs> what motivates you to be in this journey, to be in this fight as a white male, um, what was that pivot uh, for you in your life that the, the, where you decided that this was important work for you to do personally? Uh, this is another question I don't have a nice, neat, orderly answer to. I think there's been, there was a lot of things that happened along the way. Um, I'm originally an Iowa farm kid. I grew up on a small family farm in northwest Iowa, pretty, pretty rural, pretty homogenous part of the world. I was exposed to very little diversity growing up. I was also exposed to very little positive messaging about diversity. And when I graduated high school, when I was 18 years of age, um, I was at least implicitly racist, at least implicitly sexist. I was blatantly homophobic. I probably had stuff around class and ability and faith. And uh, and I probably at that point in my life, I probably hadn't even chosen a lot of that stuff. I probably just absorbed a lot of that from the people around me. But that's how I began my adulthood. Um, some of that changed a little bit serving in the Marine Corps. Some of that changed a little bit in college. I think one of the big, probably the biggest single pivot was after graduating high school, uh, excuse me, college and spending a few years in sales and sales management, I made a career change and went to work for a nonprofit organization, uh, Nebraska AIDS Project, um, a nonprofit that does 
provide service and support for folks living with HIV, and it does HIV prevention and outreach. And I went to work on that side of things. And I think by the time I went to work there, I thought I was very um, evolved, very progressive, very open-minded, and I was really just, just getting started. Just about everything in my life changed while I worked for that organization because I was surrounded by people who were different than I was. At that point in time, at least, there was very few straight white men in that work. I was almost always in the minority. I was almost always visibly in the minority. And people like me don't frequently have those experiences. Even those experiences are completely normal for other people. Um, it's a different way to be a part of something. I was also um, exposed to new story and new data. I was surrounded by people who were different than I was, and they were being treated differently than I was by institutions, organizations, people, not because of things that they had done, but simply because who they were or who they were perceived to be. And I think at that time in my life, I still didn't think a lot of that happened. I knew there was a lot of unintentional stuff that we had to fix, and that's certainly true, but I didn't realize the extent of the discrimination and the lack of justice and the lack of access in the world. And that changed my view of the world, that it changed my view of my community and it changed my view of myself. I started to see myself as having, just because of who I was, having access to things that a lot of others didn't. And I can't, I can't understand that and see that and not do something about it. Um, I just, I just can't. And that was stuff that as I came to see it, I couldn't, I couldn't unsee it. And so, um, I honestly think I don't have any choice but but to do this work. I don't think I could stop doing it if I wanted to, um, just based on my view of the world and my view of myself. I love that. And uh, <laughs> it makes so much sense to me. It, it, to bring it back now, I'd, I'd love that you talked about, and, and you're speaking to it, this work can't be an HR function. It needs to be taken out of HR. It needs to be the company. It needs to be the culture. It needs to be just how the spirit of the people there. Um, but is there a role for HR to cultivate that culture, to nurture that culture, to help develop and grow and strengthen that culture? Can HR make a difference there? I think they certainly can. And I do think HR has an important role to play in this work. I, I honestly think uh, this is maybe going to be one of the least popular things I say in this podcast. I honestly think the most important role HR could do is to do their own DNI work. I think HR has gotten a free pass on this work forever because they tend to house it. I think there's as much work to be done in HR as there is anywhere. So I, I think that's the biggest contribution. I think, you know, from that point forward, they can maybe play a role in helping the organization develop that common language, put those behaviors in, in place and accountabilities in place. I do think they have a unique role to play in it. I'm increasingly in favor of moving the DNI office or team or leader outside of HR. I think HR makes a better strategic partner than it does a landlord when it comes to this work. And as much as HR has an important role to play in this work, a lot of it reaches outside of HR. It's about vendors and it's about marketing and it's about um, other aspects of it. So I think there's value in separating the two. Um, I think HR has pulled in a lot of directions already. I don't think they have any extra financial or political capital. And I think that usually leads to DNI efforts being under supported and under resourced. Um, so I, I, I don't want to be too harsh on HR. I've spent a lot of time <laughs> in and around HR. I do think they've got an, and so many DNI leaders have come up through HR. Um, it's, there's a lot of overlap there, but I, I think, I think HR has a fair amount of its own work to do. Yeah, I would agree with that. I've been in human resources. I started my career in uh, recruiting and I've been in HR for almost 20 something years. 
And I always say it's kind of an inside secret that won't be inside anymore, that uh, the HR uh, staff treats itself the worst. Like we, we do the less work for ourselves and we uh, basically don't apply the things that we've learned to our own teams and to ourselves. And so I agree with you 100% if we could start, and I'm speaking to all of my HR colleagues, you know how to find me, I'm on LinkedIn, um, um, that we need to practice what we preach. And I, I definitely agree with that. Um, often we administer solutions to the business, but the HR people don't uh, administer those same solutions to ourselves and to each other and hold each other accountable. So um, I started at Paychex in 2005 as an HR consultant going out and supporting small businesses like the ones listening. And um, I spent a lot of time, Joe, just trying to, you know, find the human side of HR and making sure that um, businesses understood that there was an opportunity to just be human as an HR leader, or, you know, if you don't have a HR person, particularly in your organization, that that leader, that manager can um, serve in that HR role. And the last thing I'll say about that is inclusion and diversity should be a natural part of the HR role because of the inclusion piece. So I appreciate you saying that, uh, it's like one of our dirty HR secrets <laughs> that um, the HR team and, and anyone in HR would say that, like we treat each other the worse <laughs> in toxic, HR. Toxic <laughs> HR departments exist. Toxic <laughs> DNI departments exist. Yes. Those, those are real things. And so I think I think HR's opportunity is to, is to lead by example. Yes, I agree. Well, speaking of um, HR leaders and small businesses, I want to kind of flip to your book, Social Gravity, and Harnessing the Natural Laws of Relationships, because a lot of what we're talking about is all about relationships. So in your book, uh, you talk about these six laws of social gravity. So how can these laws apply to organizations as they are focusing on diversity and equity? Um, I think, you know, one of the big messages of the book is that relationships matter. The, the networks of relationships that you're connected to matter. The, the size of the network matters. The diversity of the network matters. It plays a huge role in your life. And inside and outside of work, I think we, we tend to kind of overlook those networks because they're invisible. Um, but those informal networks of relationships are so incredibly important. And inside the organization, those informal networks is kind of how information and opportunity and influence and trust moves around. And so I think, you know, I, I co-wrote it with a good friend of mine, Jason Lords, and we were just trying to give folks some simple, practical steps for uh, setting aside a little bit of time and energy to be deliberate and intentional about growing and nurturing a big, diverse network of relationships. And I think, I think that the organization can promote that. I think the organization can uh, talk about the importance of those networks of relationships. I think it can give people some time and some some coaching and some guidance on how to do that. Uh, but I think it's I think it's really important. And I think um, it's got some specific application to diversity and inclusion. Uh, I think a lot of times organizations have a hard time finding diverse applicants because the people in that organization don't have any diversity in their network of relationships. Uh, and we we all know that that's still a big determinant of how you find out about jobs and get jobs. So encouraging people, and this is another this is another thing that goes back to what inclusive leadership looks like. I think 
one of the central aspects of being an inclusive leader is continuing to bring more diversity into my network of relationships um, and thinking about what kinds of things I can do. And, and I don't think we want people to say, I need to go meet someone from this group this week, or I need to find someone from this party that I can get along with. But I think it's largely about relentlessly leaving your comfort zone, thinking about what you do with your social time, your professional development time, your volunteer time, and start going to some different places to do it. And you'll know you found a different place when you feel some discomfort. There's a reason why you don't go there today. In my experience, if you follow that discomfort, your network will fill with diversity and that's going to be a value to you. And it's going to be a value to your organization because the greater diversity of people in your network of relationships, the greater diversity of ideas and experiences and opportunities you're going to be exposed to. That benefits you. It also benefits your organization. I think people in general know that relationships matter. I think the thing that we lose sight of is that um, if we're not intentional about budgeting some time to do it, it's one of those things that doesn't happen, right? It gets pushed off and it gets pushed off and it gets pushed off. So I think a little bit of intention, a little bit of deliberateness, uh, focusing on not only growing it, but also taking care of that network of relationships, uh, pretty valuable on the individual level and the group level. I think that's so interesting, the importance of the the informal side and, and doing the personal work uh, that it takes. I can see I can see you know, a lot of companies want to do community service events and want to encourage that. And, and I've always got the impression it's, it's to make their brand look better and, and for them to show well. But if employees are really paying attention and if people are taking advantage of it, it really does give you a chance to do what you were just talking about, Joe. Really get go to places where I, I normally would never go uh, and meet people I would normally never meet. Right, right. And if you, if you do that and develop an actual relationship with that person, you're going to learn some things about the world. Because they're different from you. They're having a different experience. You're going to learn some things about their experience. You're going to learn some things about your community. You might even learn some things about yourself because different people are going to see our blind spots, are going to reflect some different things back to us. So it's a, it's a pretty rich um, opportunity. When I look back, especially the first 10 years or so of my journey, so much of what I learned was a result of not me trying to learn anything, but me going out in the world bumping into people who are different than I was, oftentimes in clumsy ways and learning something about the world or about myself. Like that's been a huge driver uh, of learning and growth in, in my life. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's just one of those things. We, we talk a great game about leaving our comfort zone, but I think, I don't, I don't think most of us are very good about it. We have to, we have to force ourselves uh, to do that, but there's, I think quite a bit of benefit there. I think you're right. I think, I think there's a need um, permission to be clumsy. Because I think that's a perfect mm -hmm. way to word it. Absolutely. Um, Thela, you can tell you, I know yeah. I've, been, I've been banging around a little bit. No, you've been doing great. And I appreciate what I see in you and what I see in Joe is that professional courage and bravery to step into the unknown. And that's what, what I hear you describing, Joe. And I just wanted to also talk about those uh, social networks and just the importance of the employee resource groups. I think a lot of times especially those outside of the marginalized groups. They think that the employee resource groups are just, you know, I had one person describe it to me as complaint departments and just people who are just complaining. But it's really an opportunity for people to be exposed to uh, different views and different thoughts. That's where, honestly, I've seen it work the best. I've seen people promoted through these groups. They've learned about new opportunities. We've seen innovation through these groups. Um, and it's, it's one of the only places some minority em employees have an opportunity 
to have visibility. Um, I've seen so many times uh, employees who most, they've been with the organization 20 years plus, but no one knew they were there until they joined an employee resource group. So um, definitely has a lot of benefits. And I love this concept of uh, social gravity and uh, the six laws of social gravity. So um, thank you. I don't have, uh, you know, you've covered a lot. And my, my next question is more around the future. And one reason I got into public policy was it was the one thing that I saw as a level of power and influence in organizations, things like the title, excuse me, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which helps to prevent discrimination. Uh, you know, so we've seen the Crown Act, which allows people like me to wear my braids to work. I mean, this was at one point taboo. You couldn't mm -hmm. wear braids in the workplace, right? So what do you see as some of the trends or I hate to say trends, re retract that statement. <laughs> some of the uh, evolution. Pro progress, evolution, that's much better than a trend, thank you. Um, the evolution of DEI, uh, how do you predict uh, the United States where we will be in the next you know, 10, 20 years? Uh, I don't know if, if I have <clears throat> any thoughts on a national level, I'd have to give that a little bit more thought. The, the, the two things that I think are a big part of the future for this work in the workplace are technology and data. I think, mm -hmm. you know, there's more, there's never been such a rush of people into this line of work as there is right now. And, and, there's, and there's pros and cons to that. But one of the pros is people from different backgrounds are coming into this work. There's new technology uh, coming into this work. Uh, we're starting to use data more aggressively. I think there are huge opportunities there. I also think we're starting to see more of an organized resistance uh, to some of this work. Some of the um, misinformed and disingenuous things that are being said about critical race theory right now, uh, and some of it's being pretty aggressively marketed, I think is, is an example of that. Um, I don't know, those are a few things top of mind that I see, mm. uh, I think for the next mm. few years are gonna make, I, I think DNI and the work in the workplace is likely going to look drastically different five or 10 years from now than it does today. I think we're, this is kind of, uh, for a number of reasons, we're kind of at a, at a turning point, but I think those are some of the, some of the things in our future. Great points. Thank you. And thank you for bringing up uh, the critical race theory, which was actually one of the frameworks in my dissertation. So we could talk offline about that. <laughs> so I appreciate you bringing that up. Yes, for certain. This was a, this was a great conversation, Joe, and we're, we're at time again. It goes too quick. Uh, but thank you again for joining the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having yeah. me. My pleasure. And Thiele, thanks for co-hosting. Thanks for your time. Yes. And, and thank you to all of our listeners. I encourage you all to visit Joe's website, joegerstant.com. Uh, you'll be able to buy his book, Social Gravity, Harnessing the Natural Laws of Relationships. Uh, and hopefully soon we'll even see a new book. Uh, from Joe that you can purchase there. Uh, you could also book him for your own company training or event. Uh, thank you, Thiele, Joe, and thank you to all of our listeners. Please stay happy and healthy. This podcast is property of Paychecks, Inc., 2021, all rights reserved.